The title is A Letter to a Suffering Church. Um, I think it's so appropriate and so relevant. Um, and ironically, it's, um, I think it speaks directly to what we're dealing with, these whole questions of justice and mercy. And, um, and I say that because I really believe that, that I, I, myself, I think it's impossible to talk about justice and mercy without going to the cross. And I know most people don't do that, but so to really deal with, in our personal lives, trying to live justice and mercy, I think takes us to the center of the cross. But I hope I can make that a little bit clear for at least in my own mind, in my own heart, as we go forward. But anyway, that's our plan. So the next couple of weeks we will, we will spend on um, abolition of man the audio should be online if they're not already. Um, I'll put Abolition of Man under C.S. Lewis under um, Two We Have Faces so that people could see the two things there. But um, I've included the poem by John Clare. I think I mentioned it in my letter to all of you. I'm not sure that, that all of you would have gotten it. And even if you did, it was a long letter. So um, I'm not sure any of you have time, but um, I suggested in that letter that you read John Clare's poem. It's, it's a poem called I Am. I love it because it seems to me it's one of the most perfect expressions of the lyric that I know of, because you know for me the lyric is an expression of the I am. It's, the, it's an expression of the subjective interior of the poet. Here's what I feel about the beloved or trees or nature or but it, it, it's, it's an inward action, outward. It's an expression of the person outward. When you get in the narrative, you're in the world, outside. Jane Austen telling the story about Jane and Darcy or Dostoevsky about, you know, Zosima. And, and drama is the, the personal voice is gone. People are acting on their own. So those three genres are basic to our understanding. I happen to believe the roots are in the Trinity. If I ever get a work published, I'm going to urge you all to buy it, but I don't know what's going to happen with it. But Anyway, Claire's poem, I Am, is in some sense, it speaks so directly to what we're talking about because Claire was institutionalized um, at a time when people, some people thought that anybody who had Christian beliefs was insane. These guys holding on to these beliefs. If you read the poem, you can't read it without being struck by the, the control, the self-control, um, the power that he has to organize lines with rhymes and rhythm. He, he, he's got perfect mastery over his lines, what he does poetry. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary. And everything he says is coherent and clear. He's anguishing about the condition he's in, the state that he's in, but he's absolutely clear. And I can't read it without wondering, what did the medical staff see in him? What, why was he institutionalized. I, I, I've not gone deeply enough to know, but anyway, it's a wonderful ex, um, example that sort of goes to the heart of what we're talking about because it's somebody who's in a hospital um, who is um, under the approaches of the staff undergoing a cure. He's somebody who needs to be cured. And we're talking about, Lewis is raising this question, what's the difference between somebody who, who's looked at in terms of justice or mercy and somebody who's looked at in terms of being cured? So 
a lot there. There's just a lot there. And all of it, in my mind, goes to what I believe is a current crisis in Western civilization. You may not share that view, but I, I just think it touches on the deepest things in who we are as humans. So a lot of materials I sent out, um, none of it's required, but um, but for those of you who are interested, there's there's a lot there, okay? So that's what we're doing for the next couple of weeks. Um, let's start. Um, I want to say a prayer, and then I want to get to the Hore poem um, again to to move it forward to see if we can complete it. So any any prayer requests tonight on the part of anybody? Okay. I'm going to be trapped, which is not my favorite thing to be doing at the moment, but I, this is a commitment I made, and I'm going to be traveling uh, during the week. So I'll miss next week. I'll be flying home, um, but just prayers for safe travels and health. Yeah, good. Thanks for that, Sue. Um, just before we start the prayers, um, have a safe trip and blessings on you. And this is going home for you. Where's home? I couldn't get the mute to come off. Uh, no, it, it's just, it's a family event. It's in Montana. Yeah. Where in Montana? Kalispell, right near Glacier Park. Yeah. I was born in Columbus. Oh, were you? Yeah. I don't even know where that is. We're Neither. flying into Missoula. <laughs> okay, let's, I'm going to mute you all, and so we can start, and I'll um, start with prayers, and then I'll pick up with the poem, okay? Bob? Um, yes, yes. Uh, can I offer a prayer for the country and the leaders oh, of the country? I was going to yep, be with them. Yep. Them. Yep. Yep. And I was going to do it, Kathy, so I'm glad oh. you asked. No, no, I'm glad you asked. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Here. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Will we meet again before the election? We will. Yes. Yes, we will next Monday. Monday and elections election Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. God. What to say? Um, thank you, Lord, for the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, your words to us. It's ordinary time, but so often the words are stark. Paul is asking us to put away everything impure and immortal. immoral. Um, Christ, the, was the reading this morning, Don Kahn? Um, you are always calling us to you. Um, some of us carry heavy burdens. Um, Suzanne and I asked for prayers for our two sons, Thomas and Christopher, particularly Christopher. Pretty serious burdens he's carrying. Um, and a new child. Um, new child, particularly. Um, Oliver. Oliver is his name. Um, <laughs> our church doesn't wave the cross it doesn't walk around it somebody's got a radio on I if somebody could turn it off um, everybody's muted what's um, Paul celebrates the cross most of us run away from it 
Um, and I know I can say that for myself. It's hard to bear it. Um, most of us would rather be comfortable than deal with the cross. Paul saw it as a gift. <coughs> so do I. Um, um, we all, <laughs> we all. This is the subject of Lewis's essays: dessert. We all deserve it. Um, we're all in sin. We're fallen. We're not Calvinists. We don't believe we have no responsibility for ourselves or that we were born depraved. We're not. Our belief is that we're born wounded, but we are responsible for ourselves. So um, heavy burdens and the world looks at things otherwise. Strengthen all of us in our efforts to live with you, um, to bear whatever it is you ask of us, to bring you to the world. Our prayers, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth here as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come for every one of us. Let it be real. I'm saying this genuinely. Let those words be real for every one of us. In any, whatever particular way any of us has it, let that kingdom be real for us here around us, part of it. And let it be here as it is in heaven. Um, let everything we do be there graciously, in courtesy, boldly, in love in truth and help us to struggle to respond to those things and people's opposition to them in the world. Help us to bring your kingdom to what we do to make it real, whatever burdens that asks of us. We've been fortunate enough to look at our human condition here. It's all around us. I mean, there's nothing we have not looked at. Nothing. Devils, um, evil, war, Grace. courtroom scenes, um, the burdens of loving another, graces offered. There's nothing that we haven't seen. It's the humanist side of our work together. For me it's a grace because it makes clear the fullness of our humanity. Lots of people don't carry it. I mean, they whatever worlds they live in, but we've had the rare honor of living it. Achilles, Aeneas, all of Chaucer's character, Shakespeare, it doesn't matter, Faulkner. Everything's there, and it makes us aware of the fullness of everything you came to redeem. It wasn't just something or, or a small part. It was everything about us. So the work that we've been doing has given us a great grace. It's also offered a burden to us because it makes us more aware of exactly what it was you came to redeem, this human side of us. So... Help us to continue to grow into it, to bear it, to love it more for seeing it, how good it is. Um, help us to find a strength in these works. Um, and um, always be glad. That's our words in the Mass. Always and everywhere to be thankful. It's not always easy to do. Um, help us not to enable to walk past things. Give us the courage to deal with them, but always to bring a mercy to what we do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Wait, go back. I'm sorry. Sorry. I meant cat. Sorry. It's been on my mind. Um, God, we're in the midst of a revolution, really. Um, two ways of looking at the world are in conflict right now, violently in conflict, violently in conflict. Um, 
the destiny of our country may be at stake here, the, everything that we set out to do. The Founding Fathers, our political fathers, set out a way of trying to keep us from destroying ourselves because every other democracy had given in, mob rule, passions. They did everything to put restraints on us um, for one purpose, for just one, to see if we could create a new, a new man. That, that was de Tocqueville's word, a new man. That we wouldn't be bound by tribal loyalties, by race, by sex. Um, we were committed to the proposition that all men were created equal, that matter, that no, no birth, no heritage, nothing should keep us from becoming who we are. Not to let race, sex, tribe, anything get in the way. Um, that was our great commission. Um, it was a proposition to see if we could do it. Um, to have a government of the people, by the people, for that is really to take responsibility for ourselves and live better lives and to put away those things that would keep us from doing that. Our country's in the midst of a crisis right now. It's, it's struggling with these very issues. Um, ask all of us, I think, ask a blessing for um, our country, its unity, um, help, um, help our political leaders especially to put passions away in whenever they're harmful, to get in the way, um, not, to, not to carry deep convictions in all they do, let them do that, but help them to get rid of passions that, that undermine what we've all set out to do, to come together as a people, whatever race, whatever sex, um, to learn to live with one another, all of us as God's children. So, going into this election, um, watch over our political leaders, help them um, to better restrain themselves, help our people in the decisions it makes, um, help us to get past these divisions, um, to recover a unity, um, to try to fulfill what we set out to do a couple of hundred years ago. So um, help all of us in this time of crisis to pull together as a country. We offer these prayers in Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, um, Kathy, that may not have covered everything, but I, because I, I know there's a lot in all of our hearts, but. Um, you did very well, Bob. I, I, I'm, thank you. Okay. No, thank you. Thank, I'm glad. Yeah, thank you. Okay, let's do um, the Hori. Can everybody pull out your. By the way, just to go back to the, the, what I mentioned a few minutes ago about um, John Clare's poem, I Am, I included it on the poetry um, file. Sometime when you have a minute this week and you want a poem, go back into that poetry file and look at John Clare because it's a pretty astounding poem. He's, insti he's institutionalized when he read it and wrote it. And remember, look at his verse, look at the measure of his line, look at the control of his language, the, the coherence of his thinking, and set that against an institution overseeing him. It's a real question in my mind. I, I don't know what the difficult, what his, you know, what his diagnosis was, um, but it's always been a question in my mind whether they really saw all these other things that were so good 
you know, whether they were properly valued, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, from the beginning, most people think of poets as being mad. <laughs> you guys have been along, you've been around me for too long not to know that, I think, by now. And so, um, poets are mad, and the people who teach them have to share in that madness. So, okay, let's do Auden, Vespers. Um, I've gone back into the poem and edited some to, um, I, 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 I bought a copy of Auden's poems. It's a huge collected, a collection of his poems and made, made some corrections of, um, so, um, you might go back and recopy it, but, okay, um, remember, if I can just very, very briefly, if I can do this quickly. In the knowns, in the ninth hour of the day, three o'clock, mid-afternoon prayers, it's when the monks would gather for prayers. At this point of this day, remember, it began with somebody awakening to consciousness, so it was coming out of, or into something like an Edenic, Edenic innocence and entering the fall. And we've watched Auden present a world fallen that does not want to admit that it's fallen. It wants days to go on for them to do whatever they're doing, but it's Good Friday, something's taking place, and most of the world is going on oblivious, even though, they, well, not oblivious, pretending that something didn't happen, doing everything they can to look past it, go on with their work, carry on what they do. Remember in the, in the knowns it began, what we know to be not possible, though time after time foretold, um, this event took place and it left um, all the people, the, the spokesman who's speaking for everybody. The day is too hot, too bright, too still, too ever. The dead remains too nothing because the victim is now dead. What shall we do till nightfall? It's that haunting sense that something has happened and nobody wants to look at it because it would be too disturbing. They want to go on and have another nice day. Um, he, he, he describes the moment. It, can anybody remember why he shouted or about so loudly in the sunshine this morning? All, if challenged, would reply. It was a monster with one red eye. The, a crowd that saw him die, not I. The hangman has gone to wash, the soldiers to eat. We are left alone with our feet. The rhyme, I'm giving emphasis to those thoughts that people go on doing all they can to try to pretend. And not only that, but they, they describe the moment in terms of, of a childish caricature of what it, what it was. Somebody with a red eye. It was a monster with one red eye. Um, everybody goes on, back to their work. Um, this is in the middle of knowns. This mutilated flesh, our victim, explains too nakedly, too well, the spell of the asparagus garden. People go back to their work. The women go back to their planting. Everybody returns. Um, the sun shines. Brook runs. Um, books are written. There will also be this death. It's there. One of the grimmest ironies of this second half of the poem where the death has taken place, the victim is killed, executed, is that think there's a dark now, suddenly it's not just people constructing a city, some dark thing has taken place. 
on page 8. Its meaning waits for our lives. Sooner than we would choose, bread will melt, water will burn, all the great quell begin. Is that hell? The great quell? Some people, the great quell will begin, the great ceasing of something, and it takes on a dark, sinister form. Bread will melt, water melt, water will burn. Is that an infernal description? And the great quell began. Abaddon set up his triple gallows at our seven gates. Fat Belial make our wives waltz naked. Meanwhile, it would be best to go home if we have a home. In any case, good to rest. We're watching an infernal condition set up. The, the triple gallows, I think, is a parody of the three crosses. Except what stands over them here is not Christ, it's Abaddon and Belial, you know, the, the gods set, who set themselves against um, Yahweh. Um, and you can hear the people. You can hear the men and women. It would it'd be best to go home, and if we have a home, in any case, good to rest. It's been a hard day. The best thing to do is go home and rest. Um, the ways in which we make our comfort greater than this cross and the, the victim mm -hmm. that was just um, crucified. Now, the next two stanzas are interesting because they both begin, that our dreaming wills may seem to escape. That's the first and then the second begin, that while we are thus awake, our own wrong flesh may work undisturbed, restoring the order we try to destroy. That is, I think that's the condition that follows from it would be best to go home if we have a home, in any case, good to rest. Why? That our dreaming wills may seem to escape, that we can put this away, go on with our lives, ignore it, pretend that it didn't happen. And the grim irony inviting, so all of this goes on, the wind sobs, the pine tree's telephones ring, inviting trouble to a room lit by one weak bulb where our double sits, writing and does not look up. So even the poet, even Auden, is castigating himself that that it's like all of it, I, it's Tom's word. I, I hope Tom is, I'm sorry he, if he's not here. It's one of the words Tom's used a, a number of times to describe what's going on in literature, what he's, what he's referred to. It's actually one of the terms that I, I think is a part of the spiritualist tradition, the masters, who all understand that every one of us has a false self and it won't be until we get rid of it that we can actually be who we are. I, I think that's what's at the heart of that scene in the Bible when, the, uh, this is so telling, you know, when the, when the disciples are competing with each other to show one is better than the other, and Christ pulls the child in front of them and tells, you know, virtually says, knock it off. And he puts the child there and then says, unless you're like, so it won't be until every one of us gets rid of this false self, all of our pretensions, all of our accomplishments, all of our self-importance, you know, the, the things that we do out of envy to try to be better than each other, just like the disciples, we will miss. So um, all this stuff happens, inviting trouble to a room lit by one weak bulb where our double sits writing and does not look up. So even the poet as close as he is to this, has created a second self, returns to that false self. And then you know it has the descriptions of the flesh going on, that while we are thus away, our, our own wrong flesh 
may work under it describes all you know the glands going on the vessels the blood pumping the body just goes on not knowing quite what has happened but awed by death like all creatures now watching this spot even though everybody wants to ignore it everybody's focused there even the animals like the hawk looking down without blinking the smug hens passing close by in their pecking order the bug whose view is balked by grass or the deer who shyly from afar peer through chinks in the forest. The interesting thing about this, one of the women from the, um, the Seton group really, I thought, picked this up so well. All of the animals are focused on this spot. You know, the, the, the hawk isn't coming down to get the chicken. The, you know, the chickens aren't getting the bugs. This is Hemingway's pecking order. This, this is the modern world. The modern world is driven by self-preservation. People will do whatever they can to survive, even if it means hurting somebody else or killing somebody else. What's at the center of this poem is scapegoating. The fact that as humans, fallen in our nature, we constantly have to make a scapegoat of somebody else before we will suffer ourselves, to put ourselves away, to die for another. So even all the, the human order, it's what Hemingway, I think, just missed you know the, the 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 hawk doesn't come down to get the chicken the chicken doesn't pick the bug it's for a moment even if the body the human body goes on doing what it does something just happened and all of nature is fixed on it so that's where we were when we when we left off with the knowns okay I'm gonna just I'm just gonna read the, the first half of Vespers because it's it's long Sorry. Tom! Is that you? <laughs> good to, it's good to see you. I'm going to mute everybody so I can, but it's good to see you, Tom. Linda, hi. It's good to see both of you. Um, if, anybody, if anybody has any... Tom, did you have a comment? Did you have something? Tom, put yourself with your ears. Did you have a comment? Oh. Okay, I'll go on. Bob? Yeah. Linda texted me and said they can't hear you. Uh, it's not at my end. Everybody else can hear me, right? Yeah, everybody can hear me. It must, it's got to be at your end, Linda. Here I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and and read um, Vespers, okay? And I'm gonna mute you all again. If anybody needs to jump in with questions, feel free to jump in, okay? But this is Vespers, okay? So this is the evening prayers. Now stop and think about this. The poem began with morning prayers with Prime, awakening to consciousness, entering a fallen world on Good Friday. Everything that happened was pointing towards the victim, the scapegoat, and the way in which everybody was involved, implicated, the way we create scapegoats for ourselves. I, Tom, I, I mentioned you a while ago, I don't know if you heard this, about the way in which we all have these false selves that we have to get rid of, and, and clearly in the poem, very few people are aware of that. They're going on as if nothing had happened. So. The crucifixion has taken place, 3 o'clock, 
people are moving into the um, evening hours, and this takes place now um, during evening prayer. Okay, this is Vespers. If the hill overlooking our city has always been known as Adam's grave, only at dusk can you see the recumbent giant, his head turned to the west, his right arm resting forever on Eve's haunch. Can you learn from the way he looks up at the scandalous pair what a citizen really thinks of his citizenship? Um, just as now you can hear in a drunkard's caterwaul his rebel sorrows crying for a parental discipline in lustful eyes perceive a disconsolate soul scanning with desperation all passing limbs for some vestige of her faceless angel who in that long ago when wishing was a help mounted her once and vanished for sun and moon supply their comforting masks conforming. Co sorry con conforming masks but in this hour of civil twilight all must wear their own faces I think this is the false self that Tom has mentioned a number of times must wear their own faces, and it's now that our two paths cross. So something's happening at this moment that's an interesting comment on what happens to us after the crucifixion, after we've crucified this victim, and take on these divided selves. Um, two paths cross. Both simultaneously recognize his anti-type, that I am an Arcadian, that he's utopian. He notes with contempt my Aquarian belly. I note with alarm his scorpion's mouth. He would like to see me cleaning latrines. I would like to see him removed to some other planet. Neither speaks. What experience could we possibly share? Glancing at a lampshade in a store window, I observe it's too hideous for anyone in their senses to buy. He observes it's too expensive for a peasant to buy. Let me say just briefly, because I, I want to I try to save as much kind. What he's doing is showing the full range of possibilities for our human behavior once the fall takes place. These are the two poles of every possible expression of who we are as humans. The two poles are Edenic, the New Jerusalem. Eden, the New Jerusalem. One is Edenic, it's Arcadian, it's pastoral, it's innocent. That's what grips us. Or it's utopian. So the whole range of our expressions are, are you know, whatever potential expressions we bring to our lives is covered by those two poles. So he's showing two antitypes, each one responding to the other. The guy who identifies with Eden, who's Arcadian and pastoral, well, and sort of um, well-mannered and proper and prim and everything right, sets himself against this other guy who's utopian, who looks forward um, who's, who, to the New Jerusalem, who's made violence more a part of his life because he's had to get there. So these two antitypes give us the whole range of our human experiences after the fall. So watch as they unfold. Glancing at a lapside in a store window, I observe it's too hideous. Because remember, he's proper and above for anybody in their senses to buy. He observes it's too expensive for a peasant to buy. Passing a slum child with rickets, I look the other way. He looks the other way. 
if he passes a chubby one. I hope our senators will behave like saints, provided they don't just reform me. He hopes they will behave like baritone, kativi, the naughty baritones. And when lights burn late in the citadel, I, who have never seen the inside of a police station, am shocked and think, were the city as free as they say after sundown, all her bureaus would be huge black stones. He, who's been beaten up several times, is not shocked at all, but thinks one fine night our boys will be working up there. You can see then why between my Eden and his new Jerusalem, no treaty is negotiable. They are absolutely at odds, irreconcilable. You can see then why between my Eden and his new Jerusalem, no treaty is negotiable. In my Eden, a person who, do, who dislikes Bellini, that's a high-class drink, has the good manners not to get born. <laughs> In his New Jerusalem, a person who dislikes work will be very sorry he was born. In my Eden, we have a few beam engines, saddle tanks, locomotives, overshot water wheels, and are the beautiful pieces of obsolete machinery to play with. In his New Jerusalem, even chefs will be cucumber-cool machine minders. In my Eden, our only source of political news is gossip. In his New Jerusalem, there will be a special daily in simplified spelling for nonverbal types. In my Eden, each observes his compulsive rituals and superstitious taboos, but we have no morals. In his New Jerusalem, the temples will be empty, but all will practice the rational virtues. I'm going to I'm going to stop there. Um, just keep this in mind. One of the beauties about what he's describing there, remember this is after the crucifixion, is that we will never meet anybody who doesn't make us aware of some incompleteness on our own. That everybody will call to mind something incomplete in ourselves. The, the two poles defining that tension are Eden and the Jerusalem. Everything, no matter what takes place. Um, so both of them will make the other, each of them will make the other aware of something he doesn't have or wants. So let me leave it there. Um, I, when we complete it next week, I'll read the rest of it, and I, and I hope by then um, we'll, we'll make a little bit better sense of it. But, but this is the, I think the important thing is that we've gone from known the, the execution of the victim, the scapegoat, and just to read a couple of lines, just to make this sort of clear, at the very end of the Vespers, he says, um, was it simply a fortuitous intersection of light paths, these two people, loyal to different fibs or also a rendezvous between accomplices who in spite of themselves cannot resist meeting to remind the other because it, it doesn't matter where we go, we will always meet another anti-self something reminding us of a difference. Cannot resist meeting to remind the other, do both at bottom desire truth, that of, of that half of their secret, which he would most like to forget, forcing us both for a fraction of a second to remember our victim, but for him I could forget the blood, but for me, the antitype, he could forget the innocence on whose immolation um, where does he go? Arcadia's utopias, our dear old bag of a democracy, are alike founded. So just two 
two comments quickly here. Interestingly here, the center of this thing, this section, the Vespers, is the city that once again, um, on the hill overlooking our city, has always been known as Adam's grave. That there is a fall, that the city is an image of all that we commit ourselves to, to create a world without God. The execution has just taken place. Everybody's trying to act like it didn't happen. Remember, this is Good Friday. But what one of the effects of it, one of the byproducts of what just took place is it's created this, this division within ourselves that gets expressed in terms of two antitypes. Whatever, whoever they meet from that moment on will remind them of something they'd rather forget, of that half of their secret which he would most like to forget, forcing us both for a fraction of a second to remember our victim on whose immolation Arcadia's, Utopia's, our dear old bag of a democracy are all like our every effort we make to found a city, a community here rests on that immolation, that scapegoat. So at the center of this poem, all these prayers is this victim, this scapegoat that um, that everybody wants to pretend isn't there. Um, Mark, are you? I did you? Did anybody want to make a comment here before we go on? Oh, I just there was my son texted me and uh, Barrett has been confirmed. Oh yes. Oh wow, wow, good. Yes. Yeah, good for her. It's official. Yeah, good. I think, I, I mean, I think most of us believe it. Some of us were doubters, but I'm so glad. Extraordinary woman. I don't know, how, and I don't want to make this political, but um, extraordinary woman, just so gifted, and um, I'm glad. I'm really glad. Um, Thanks, Mark. Say it again, Mark. I said, I just hope she stays that way. She will. She will. I saw an article today that Justice Thomas was the one who was going to swear him in. I thought it was really appropriate, you know, a black man, a woman, that, um, that it, I mean, in the best of sense, it represents, um, and, and the fact that Kavanaugh and, and Barrett are Catholic, I mean, they're, they're, there's so much, to, whatever, whatever the divisions are in a country. So is Biden, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. what? what? So is Biden. What, what? Uh, anyway, I just, it, you know, they're, there are all these little signs of something, these little things going on in the midst of all this violence. So anyway, thanks for letting us know about that, Mark. Thank you for that. Yeah. Are you, are you aware there are six, now six Catholics that are Supreme Court justices? I, I wasn't. Is that true? It is true. All, my response to that, that either means our country is really going down, going to hell. Or we can we can hope for a turn. <laughs> no, there's there's six uh, on the Supreme Court. On the Supreme is that right? Court. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It's true, Kevin. I would be scared if I were on the other side. No wonder people are so upset. <laughs> God. Okay, come on, let's start. We've got we've got a tough essay to do here. So I I want to. It was clear last week that that some of you are having difficulty following this because of the terms. Let me, I'm going to try to just go through this briefly and then ask you a couple of simple questions um, to try to flesh this out and, and see what your response is, good or bad, whether you 
agree with him or disagree or you know have what all this does for you but um, the context of this is that there's this um, um, disagreement in the West and centered right now in England about capital punishment. Lots of people in the modern world look at capital punishment as cruel and the people who take that position use the word on the first page, second paragraph, it says they look at punishment as mere revenge and therefore as barbarous immortal. And they go on um, that in order to have a more humane way of dealing with wrongs, they've got to get away from that. And their position is that it won't be until we start looking at, at people um, as deserving of something more humane to be cured, we won't get away from this more barbaric way of doing things. Now, before we go on to the next paragraph, I just want to get clear. Would anybody here make a distinction between revenge or justice? Or does everybody just assume, I guess like these people do, that justice is revenge? I don't want to take things for granted right now. So I'm going, I'm, I'm going to go step by step as careful as I can. Um, do you all believe that, hold on, hold on. Do you all believe that justice is revenge or is there a difference? And if there is a difference, what is it? Justice is not revenge. What's the difference? Yeah, it's not. No, I don't think it is either. Wait, I don't want I don't want assertions here. I want somebody to give me a re a reasoned argument. Well, I think a vengeful person feels that they have been Yeah, let's get Fred. Can I? Can I wait? Can I ask Eric? Stop. If you could all stop. I've not done this before, but we're. It's it's interesting to me because in the last few weeks we've taken a departure from our usual way of doing things, and it's a more open-ended thing. Fred's had his hand up for a minute or so. Could all of you um, just flash the hand up just so we can see, so that other people can be aware that somebody wants to talk, so we're aware of each other. Fred, you go ahead. Can you can you get a visual on yourself? Because I we don't see you here. I don't know what's. Maybe uh, maybe. I think I I have my video on. Oh, there you are. There you are. Go ahead, uh, Fred. Go ahead. A difference. I, I don't know if it's the difference, but a difference is I see justice as some something based on something fundamental, for first principles. Um, rules, rules of law, whatever. To me, revenge is very much relative. 
and I think in, in keeping with our discussion that's coming up, revenge is based on someone's personal belief about whether or not they've been offended. Yeah. Yeah. Justice is whether a wrong has been done based on um, you know, natural law, agreed upon principles, you know, God's instruction, whatever. But it's you know, it, it, it can be traced back to something structurally sound where revenge in my mind and, and going back to what Mark said, I think the reason it can be good or bad is because it's uh, relative yeah. to whether someone good or bad is is feeling vengeful. Yeah. Don, did you have something? Yeah. I have something. Um, <clears throat> there's two issues here. One is we're talking about justice under the law. That is, you do X crime, you get Y sentence, punishment, prison, fine, or what. And then there's the issue of, is the law itself just? You know, there's lots of laws that have been passed in the past in this country and other countries that are completely unjust laws. So which one are we talking about? Well, right now, if we could just keep it at a general level and make a distinction between justice and vengeance. Justice under the law. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Anybody else before? Yes, uh, Bob, am I, am I coming in or? Yeah, yeah, you are. Go ahead. Okay, the, the you know, just like everything else in life, you go back to the, the first time. So justice, the first justice evidence was basically Adam and Eve being thrown out of the the, uh, the garden. Yes. I mean, yes. That's yeah. the first evidence of and first exa example. Yep. That yep. We have of what what constitutes justice and the I breaking mean, of a law. Well, it, it's but there was a yeah. law that was made. Right. I mean, right. He right. Apparently, told Adam not to not to eat the fruit. Right. And he told Eve, I mean, not to eat the fruit. Right. And both of them did violated that that the law. Right. He applied the justice that right. existed. Right. Similarly, with regard to Cain and Abel, right. I mean, there's you know other examples. So, to me, I mean, you have to look at, at the first example that, that you have to 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 make a definition. If if that's clearly justice, how do you how do you first interpret that with regard to its application? Uh, first off, uh, is was the re, was the consequence correct? Uh, I, I, I obviously it, it, you. You take a position. You're taking it with that's obverse to it. You're taking it against God, basically. Right, right. Bob, can you go on from that? Yeah, yes to everything you say. Can you go on from that to make a distinction between justice and vengeance? Well, <laughs> well, vengeance I think would be what the de the the first the first yeah. Where's the first example that you like? Like I said, you always want to start with a definition of the word. I mean, people go back to their basically the, the dictionary always does it by going back to the base root of the thing. But we're in a case where we're looking for what what would be the first example that you could think of that would represent vengeance. I I think that's where you you'd want to go rather than looking at some someone's consideration of what they wrote as to what they what they think vengeance is. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we you know that. Our Christian tenets basically say 
hey, we're, you know, we're or, organized basically on in this life based on the, the principles of whatever, whatever we were granted in by God. Yeah. If I can, or I've got hand, you got the... Those of you who've had your hand up a minute ago, if you're if you're not holding up, could you take it off? I don't know what you do to remove it, because your hand is still up, Fred and Don. Yours is. Do you want to talk again, or can you take your hand down? I I've got to learn to read this thing, and um, let me let me try to make a just a basic distinction f- for the sake of going on. Um, I think everything that everybody said is right to the point. And I think um, Bob went to it in its beginnings really well because all of our notions of justice come from that original act. Um, We broke a law and we were punished and that notion of justice and punish has entered into our, it's part of our psyche. When you do something wrong you you have to take responsibility for it and um, something will happen. Um, There's two two things though Bob with regard to, to, to that aspect. There's the aspect of the person who received the justice and the other people who basically look at the justice, okay? Most of the people who, who, who really are willful and take responsibility would basically consider that as their justice. Most of the people who look at what was done will basically view a lot, many times, as, the, as that being vengeance. Yeah. The, pe- yeah. the people who are being hurt. If yeah. if your son is killed, he might have been justifiably killed by the police, but the but the, the his mother or his wife may right. very well right. respond by saying, I, "I want that policeman killed, or I want him right. to go to jail." Right, right, right. And that to me is vengeance. Yeah, <laughs> let me let me if I can, because I really we've got a we've got a I, I wanted I just hope we can get to abolition. Maybe we can't, but I'm I'm really going to work hard to get there. If I can just put in this brief distinction, I'd say justice is using Bob's definition and Don's or Enmark's that justice is according to um, some sense of law or order. You know that I've been using it in both a biblical Old Testament way and in a Platonic way, Aristotelian way, that there's an order to the universe and an order to our souls and we have to struggle to bring our wills into conformity with that order. So if we keep killing people, we're out of tune with that order, that way of things. So I'd say justice is being um, in accord, being brought into accord with something. So if we, if we take $50 that's not ours, we pay $50 back. St. Thomas would say, I, and I agree with him, you pay $50 back, but you pay $10 more to answer the inclination, because all of us have it. He's not being punitive. He's saying justice means we have to right things, bring them into accord. I'd say vengeance, to go along with what Fred said a minute ago, was personal. That it always goes beyond. So that if, you know, an eye for an eye or $50 for $50, when... When somebody responds in a spirit of vengeance, they're going beyond, they're making it personal. That's why the image of justice for us from ancient times, from Athens, from Rome, from Jerusalem, and by the way, I just want to underscore this because I want to try to stay clear of Christ for just a moment, just a moment. 
if you look at justice as it was handed down in Athens and Rome and um, Jerusalem, what's called um, the way of Athens, the way of Rome, the Davidic way, that's the way of the ancient world until Christ comes, that those are the foundations for his coming. The justice was this sense of being in accord with things. The positive laws on the books were attempts to articulate that, like the Ten Commandments, as Don said. But very often, because human beings are flawed, they will make bad laws. They'll be out of accord with... I mean, that's happened historically. But I'm trying to generalize because I want to avoid some of these finenesses now just to get on. But justice has always meant that there's an order to the world and there's an affinity between us and the world and our effort is to try to bring ourselves into conformity with that, to be just, to be one with, with the world, with others. Just or vengeance means um, going beyond that because you don't, you don't restrain your personal feelings from stopping there, you want more. So to Bob's point, if, if, um, if somebody you love is killed and justice, let's say, let's say justice lets the policeman off who killed your son. You're going to feel that justice wasn't served. You, you want more. And by the way, just to put this in a context, I, you know that I watch a lot of movies. It's, it's one of my vices, just keeping up with stories. When I watch movies today, and I, I watch movies dealing with the law and order, I, I'm gonna, I don't think this is an exaggeration. 90% of them, a good 90% of them, make vengeance the theme and righteous. And I'm going to go on record right now and say, Mark, you, we may disagree on this, but I'm going to say, vengeance is never, never, never right. Ever. Justice means being brought into accord with something. Hopefully laws will get us there, but very often they don't. We can have bad laws. Vengeance is wanting something more. It's be, it becomes personal. And vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I mean, I, don't want to, I didn't want to bring that up, but... But I make that distinction that justice is coming into accord with something outside of us. So the, one of the differences is justice is objective. If you look at the Statue of Justice traditionally that we inherited from Athens and Rome and Jerusalem, it's the woman with blindfolds on her eyes and uh, um, scales and a sword. Because nobody, nobody will ever impose justice without bringing pain to somebody. If your child takes something and you say to your child, you're not, you're not going to go to the party this next weekend because you did that, very few children are going to go you know, happily around that. They're going to feel suffering because every, every act of justice assumes a penalty, a will being crushed. You didn't get what you wanted. So there's, it almost always involves a pain in the punishment, okay? Vengeance wants more. So um, here, Lewis is taking on all those people who want to see crimes in terms of vengeance. I just want to get clear at the beginning that I think there's a fundamental difference between justice and vengeance. One is impersonal, it's objective, it relates to an objective standard of being. All people are held to it. Even if laws, bad laws can be made, that's the assumption behind it. Vengeance goes beyond. It always wants more. It's something personal. It's not objective. Okay. He goes on to say um, that 
Um, the answer of, of so many moderns is to do away with that because um, in their mind, acts of justice seem inhumane and barbaric and even immoral. They want to replace justice with um, a, a theory of curing. Now the point we've got to get to in this essay is what's at stake here? Why is Lewis arguing against it? He goes on to say here in the middle of page one, my contention is the doctrine Merciful though it appears really means that each one of us from the moment he breaks the law is deprived of the rights of a human being. The reason is this, the humanitarian theory removes from punishment the concept of desert, which means deserving, somebody's owed something. Um, if you are on a playground and you hit somebody you shouldn't, you should be suspended for, let's say I'm giving off the top man, you should be suspended, you deserve a punishment. But the concept of desert is the only connecting link between punishment and justice. It's the only, it is only as deserved or understood that a sentence can be just or unjust. He doesn't want to um, deal with um, deterrence and other things. He just wants to deal with this notion of desert, whether something is deserved. Um, hold on, sorry you guys. On page two, he says, we demand of a cure not whether it's just but whether it succeeds. Thus when we cease to consider what the criminal deserves and consider only what will cure or deter others, we have tacitly removed him from the sphere of justice altogether instead of a person, a subject of rights, we now have a mere object, a patient, a case. Now here's the crux of it, at least up to this point. On the top of page two, he says, the distinction comes clear um, when he says this. On the old view, the problem of fixing the right sentence was moral problem. Accordingly, the judge who did it was a person trained in jurisprudence, trained, that is, in a science which deals with rights and duties, and which, in origin at least, was consciously accepting guidance from the law of nature and from scripture. We must admit that in the actual penal code, most he goes on to say that people have abused that, and it, it's called for reform at different times in the, you know, historically, Don, Don's made that point a couple of times, because very often we make bad laws, and in fact, we often make bad laws or abusive laws, and laws are need constantly need of reform. And when um, actual punishment conflicted too violently with the moral sense of the community, juries refused to convict and reform. <clears throat> juries refused to convict and reform was finally brought about. This was possible because so long as we are thinking in terms of desert, the propriety of the penal code being a moral question is a question in which every man has the right to an opinion. Not because he follows this or that profession, he's not trained in the sciences, he's not Christian, he doesn't matter, but simply because he's a man, a rational animal enjoying the natural light. So what he's saying is that previously, all of us were grounded with some moral sense, who we are as humans, related us to a higher order, um, laws of nature, laws of God. Um, but something happened. But this, all this changed when we dropped the concept of desert. The only two questions we, we may now ask about a punishment are whether it deters and whether it cures. I want to leave out deterrence for a minute because he goes, I'm, I'd, li I'd like to pass on it. He goes on to say pretty clearly that um, deterrence can't enter into the 
issue here because um, a person can be innocent and still be used to deter or he can be guilty and um, people may not be deterred. I mean, it's, a, it's another question. His concerns is this whole concept of desert. So let me, let me, let me, if I can, skip to that and go to, I think, what's the crux of the essay and then put this question out to you. There are two very different notions of our human nature in both of these. In one of them, there's a, an understanding that um, all of us share the same nature. Um, we have a moral conscience. None of us needs to be experts. Um, together we can form a moral code about what our nature is and make laws based on that. And all of us are bound to those laws. Um, we very often reform them when we see that something's not so. Under this new way of doing things, curing depends on experts who um, have an education because whatever their education is given that makes it possible for them to determine what our sickness is and how to cure it. Experts can disagree on that. So my basic question right now is what's the difference between those two ways of looking at us as humans and why does it matter? I think that's the crux of Lewis's concern. Why is he bothered? What's at stake um, by holding to either one of those two views? Jeannie. Yeah, we can hear you. We can hear you. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe the dignity of the human person. Um, if, if the person is treated according to justice, tempered with mercy, um, then they their own dignity and their own self-respect has not been taken away. But if they're treated simply as an, an ill person who needs to be cured, then they become an, an object instead of a person. Did you have something, Carl, to add to that? Sorry. Say that. There's an issue about how well the, the guilty know when they're cured. Or even the cure, how well he, you know, he would know when, when um, the person's cured. Yeah. Fred, did you have something? Go ahead. Yeah, I, to me, what I got out of it was, first of all, there was a, a point being made by Lewis that the basic training of the soul, if you will, about what is right and wrong is missing from the education that was going on in, what was it, 1943 when he wrote the text. And without that basic structure, then we move from a, a realm where justice is based on something absolute to where we where we move to what was going on in the humanitarian movement at that point, 
a dispensing of either a cure or a retribution based on something that's very relative and difficult to get your arms around. And we move from a concept of justice where if there's a basic structure, every human being can make that determination. Whereas if we move from a, a, the concept of a, of a cure or a retribution approach to justice, then it becomes very relative and there's only a handful of people who can actually dispense that and no one really knows whether the cure is is ever effective when it ends right um you know because it's based on someone's relative perspective and not on a on a concrete concept yeah well don go ahead did you have something well i have i have something Bob. oh sorry go ahead when i when i read when i read this this lewis thing I, I put my own life in this sense. My father, when I behaved, misbehaved or lied, he would pull out the pitka, which is equivalent to a caddy nine tails, and he would beat the hell out of me, okay, for doing it. He, his intention was to, of course, change my way of, of living and behaving very clearly. My reaction to him, and, and he was hoping it was to be a deterrent, very definitely. It, my just desserts and my revenge was basically to always burn the pitka. And I would, <laughs> once he find out, once he find out that I would do it, he would make a new one, and I would get another licking. Okay? So all the elements of whatever is there, the justification, the dessert, <laughs> the mercy, or which was not always what he called the vengeance, and of course the change in in what did I change? And to a certain extent, I did. Yes, every time. Because <laughs> I, I was full of regret, but I also you, had you stopped had, burning. You stopped burning all the patches. Is that what you said? Eventually, yes. He ran out of belts. <laughs> You're right. I, I, I eventually burnt all the all the uh, broomstick handles that he saved to put them in. <laughs> Bob. Wait. Can you hold? Sorry, Kathy. Don's had his hand up. You. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Don, go I, ahead. Can uh, you go ahead? I took a class in natural law one time. Uh, uh, I have the CDs. Uh, it was taught by a priest from Fordham University. It was on natural law, and basically he says there's a hierarchy. Eternal law, divine law, natural law, human law. So right. human law right. um, has to be in accord with uh, natural law or eternal law or divine right. law. Right. Uh, can't uh, you know be opposed to that. And I think that's what Lewis is trying to get to. Yes. Now the big question is, well, <laughs> we can we can talk about what is natural law, what is eternal law, and and we may have some disagreement about that. But I think that's his thing is that uh, these things have to be in harmony and in agreement. Yeah, but my question, Don, my question right now is what I want before we go any further in an argument. My question right now is what's the difference in the way that we look at human beings? If we look at it in terms of a cure or justice, what what does that do for the way we look at human beings? Somebody who somebody said, I think was it Fred that said there would. And we, here, let me. What my question, Don, is, is is there? Does it matter that we look at somebody in terms of curing him 
um, and somebody in terms of justice and mercy, what's the difference in the way that we look at people, the way we treat them? Because that's Lewis's issue. His, right now he's saying, his argument, if I can boil it down, is to say, the people who've taken this position that curing is, is more humanitarian are actually going to end up being less merciful. And he's making the argument. So the, I want to I get to the root of this problem. What's the difference between look at, looking at people as things to be cured and looking at people who, when they commit wrongs, have to be treated with justice and mercy? What's the difference between those two positions? I'm just flesh, I'm asking us to flesh out Lewis's distinction for a second. Kathy, did you have something? Yeah, well, I don't know if this is relative, but I remember years ago reading a book by Carl Menninger, and it was Whatever Became of Sin. And what he said was, oh, he said, we made all our sins sicknesses. And he says, we've really done a disservice because we've taken away a person's hope. If the pill doesn't cure you, then you're stuck with the sickness. And I'm also wondering in the relationship to cure and uh, justice, if um, when you do that, when you approach it in, as curing it, if you're not, if, if the cure doesn't work, if you haven't relieved the person from responsibility. Yeah. Let me, if I can for a second, Kathy. You're, yeah, I'm sorry. I thought you were done, yes? I am done. Okay. Yes. I want to turn to Suzanne, if I can, for a second. Doc, your, your response to this? I think my response... Can, by the way, can you all hear her? Because she's... Can you hear her all right? Yes. Go ahead, Doc. So I think my response is, is pretty much what everybody else is saying, that if you... If you... Um, if you take... If you make the issue an illness... The person is, first of all, totally passive from beginning to end. He's not responsible for the illness. Um, he's not responsible for what he does because it's the illness that's doing it. He's just totally passive. And it diminishes him as a human being because part of being human, as opposed to an animal... Or an object. ...is that you are responsible. Um, you have that capacity um, and you are responsible. So the cure paradigm takes away your responsibility and leaves you totally passive. You have... Or you're a victim of things over yeah, some sickness. That's, yeah, that's what I mean. You're, yeah. you're, you're a victim. You're you weren't responsible for getting the illness and you're not responsible for anything the illness makes you do and you're not responsible for the cure it's something that is imposed on you from outside and um, it either takes or it doesn't Doc, when we were talking at the dinner tonight you were sorry if I can just take a second with Doc here we were talking at dinner tonight, we were talking about how important responsibility is. That was central to your... Mm -hmm. Some of the ways in which we assume responsibility in our life, you were... Well, I was just saying that as being a, a young person growing into 
the adult community, whether it's um, bar mitzvah, um, confirmation, marriage, taking on a new job, whatever it, whatever the watershed moment is when you step out of being a child into being an adult human being, you accept responsibility and that everybody in the adult community that you're joining expects you to take that responsibility. Um, and if you don't, then they're going to fire you or divorce you or whatever. Um, so I think taking away that, that responsibility really diminishes a person. Um, is dignity, to go back to what um, Jenny said, this inherent dignity we've had. If I, can, if I can just jump in for a minute to hear where you guys will go with this. I mean, Suzanne was saying that the notion of, of individual responsibility is so crucial to us as a people in the West. It's been, you know, it's been at the center of our literature. If you begin with a notion that you're not responsible and that you have a sickness, and the cure of that sickness is in somebody else's hands, you're indirectly diminishing the dignity of that other person. That person becomes an object subject to your control. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of, I want to just push two lines if I can, if I can hold on to this, because this sometimes gets beyond me. But if, if all of you got the stuff, and I'm sorry it was so loaded, but I'm just trusting you will sort it out yourself. Don sent a note days ago in which he made the point he was following up our discussion last week and I'm done correct me if I'm getting this wrong he was saying that there's a difference between um, I can't remember how you put it but um, there's a difference between treating somebody with justice and mercy and somebody who who's looked at as being sick in need of a cure because what's at stake in the human person is the human will so Doc is using the word soul. I'm, I mean by that. It's the spiritual will, the free will is at stake. So it's a, it, and one of the interesting things about me, to me, about this whole notion of cure, because it's supposed to be more humane and nicer, um, and I'm not doubting that some people overdo justice. Bob, I, I mean, all of us have examples of, of parents or people who, who are attempting to... Um, impose justice but who overdo it I, I don't think that does away with justice it what it does is remind us that people do awful things in the name of justice that they overdo it. I mean you get closer to something like vengeance justice doesn't mean that the, the image of justice remembers that person with blindfold that if there's some objective you hold on to the objective nature of a human person so people have, have, have all all of us I think have overstepped lines in trying to be just but the, the, the question, two questions I'm raising here, one is, if you're dealing with the human soul, which is spiritual in nature, you're dealing with free will, and you approach that person with analogies to the human body, when a body gets sick, you cure it. If you approach the human soul, and you know from me that I'm arguing from the beginning that the human soul has a transcendent aspect to it, that there's something immortal, and that immortal part comes into play when God interacts with humans in the moment of conception so that when a human soul is conceived there's something transcendent in that nature. That's been at the center of our work since the Iliad. 
If there's a transcendent element to the human soul and, and the will is a free will, can applying justices or cures based on analogies to the body, if you've got this sickness, you cure it using this. Will, will those approaches be just to the human person? Or will they diminish that person's dignity? I mean, what Fred was saying and Susanna has been saying. That's one. So one is, um, can we treat humans? And by the way, so many people who treat humans today in terms of cure, I, this is crucial to the argument. So many people who treat human beings with theories of cure deny free will. It doesn't exist. People have got this sickness whether they want it or not, and they're going to imply these treatments. It's precisely the existence of free will that they overlook because there's mysteries involved with that. So one is, what happens, or can, can, we, can we treat human beings with a theory of cure without doing something to violate their dignity as human beings, the free will, the dignity, all of that? That's one. The second is, what happens over a sustained period of time if the assumption behind the cures that people apply are that people are sick? They begin with a sickness, so that so they're denying human. Suzanne's argument: they're denying that human beings are responsible for what they do. Some sickness comes; it can be their parents, the environment. Let it be whatever it is. That people are not responsible for what they do. They've got this sickness. We've got to cure them. Right now, I'm not talking about how long or the competence of the cure. Or he, they can be wrong. Some will say a year, two years. We don't know. I'm not. My question is. Over long periods of time, if that's the approach to dealing with human wrongs, we see people in terms of curing them, what will be the effect of that over time? So those are two, two questions. I have. The first one has to do with the fact that man has a free will, and the second has to do what's the, what's, what will be the effect of looking at human beings that way over, over an extended time. Don, go ahead. Did you, was your hand, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um. Yeah, wait. It's a little bit more complicated, I think, because you, if we talk about addiction—alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever addiction you want to talk about—there's a physiological and there's a spiritual dimension to it. People go into rehab and treatment centers to detox, and that's to take care of the physiological aspects. But a real alcoholic doesn't have control he is he is addicted and he just has to have that alcohol and uh you know you treat the uh physical side and, but you have to also treat the spiritual side because right. a lot of it stems from spiritual problems and issues and that's the 12-step program is a spiritual program designed to change behaviors to take a moral inventory and to work a program that's designed to uh get rid of the bad habits and try to develop new habits yeah so right that's a little bit you know twisted because the medical profession says alcoholism and addiction is a disease and even though it's a disease it's not the same as say uh, heart disease or cancer or right. uh, diabetes right. You know, right. those are diseases that can be treated with a pill or surgery or right. what have you right right let me Fred before I Suzanne, go ahead. You had said. I was just going to say. The only reason I'm sorry, Fred, it, uh, Suzanne doesn't have a hand here, so 
She started. I want if you can hold off for a second. She jumped in here because Doc, go ahead. So you're you're absolutely right, Don. And the thing that's good about the twelve step programs is that it acknowledges the physical and wants to treat that, but it also gives the human being the dignity of participating in, taking responsibility for their sobriety day by day by day by day. It's their responsibility. And that's different from going in and having a pill. cancer surgery right. or taking a pill. You know, a stent put in your heart. Yeah. And let me if I can just interject oh sorry, Don, go ahead. People who aren't willing to uh, do the necessary work to have a sponsor and go to counseling and work on their issues, you know, don't get better. Yeah. Right? Yeah, to Fred, I'll come, hold on, just if you can for one second. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the, I, and I don't want to take this up, I want to get to Fred. It, Don, your, your response to me, and partly answers my second question, or assumes it, because, and let me try to, let me try to back up to catch up with your question, if I can put it that way. My question was, um, what happens to a people when attitudes, you know, ways of looking at them are based on materialist assumptions because our, our modern world is absolutely materialistic at its base. So, so when they talk about a cure, they're largely talking about it in terms of analogies to the human body. Take a pill, do a heart surgery, put in a stent, things like that. I mean, you're absolutely correct in what you're talking about in 12 steps. But the, my question was this, what will be the long-term effect of looking at people in terms of cures when that way of looking at people undermines human responsibility? So, 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 what, so here, in retrospect, what I'm partly arguing, even though I put it in terms of a question, is 200 years ago, our ways of looking at human beings was very different from the way they are since the 19th century with Freud and Marx and all the, you know, all the ideologues and it's what Lewis is really contending against, I think. So one of my questions is whether or not the, the increase in addictions in our age, and they're tremendous, alcohol, drugs, pornography, sex, tra I mean, you can go on and on. In fact, I'll, I'll say even more, food, eating, drinking at an ordinary level, that if you look at society largely, a great part of it is either caught in addictions or vices. I mean, I'll make a, you know, assume that everybody will understand that. But we're not a healthy world. And it's a world in which it's increasingly harder for people to take responsibility for themselves and not feel that they're, that they're victims, that they're creatures the, who are products of forces over which they have con no control. We were talking about this with Hemingway and some with Dostoevsky. That we've entered a world in which so much, so, so many of the ways in which we think about ourselves assume a lack of responsibility, a lack of free will, a lack of a God. So we've created a world in which, it make, in which it's easier to give in to addictions, to turn to other things, to do these things, to depend on a medical cure, so that we're partly looking at the effects that, of something that had its beginnings in what Lewis is talking about, these approaches that 
the, um, to the human being. I, I've got one more remark to make, but I, but Fred, I've taken too much. Do you want to? Did you want to? Let me jump in here right now and then turn it over to you because you you, you took your hand down. Um, I'm going to say this. One of the interesting things about these two these two ways of looking at a human being is this. One of them is Catholic. One of them is absolutely Catholic. The Catholic view is that we are wounded, um, but we are naturally good, and that we are responsible for actions. Now hold on to this. Any view that holds that we're sick is Calvinistic. It assumes something wrong from the outset, that we're products of these forces over which we have no control. We're sick, and we need somebody to cure us. So just the notion itself of being sick points in a Calvinistic direction. We've inherited these depravities. We're subject to They control our lives. We're not free. So if you trace these two ways of looking, scientific and political, however you want to look at them medically, back to origin, it goes back... It, you're looking at two very different theologies. And it's interesting to me, if you look at those two theologies, one that's Catholic, one that's Calvinistic, one that says we're wounded, or we're, we're inherently good but wounded, the other one that we're depraved, we're sick, we're depraved. And go back to Bob's comment a while ago, the origins of our disorders were not a sickness. I Stop and think about this for a second. If you go back to origins, Bob's point was so good. If you go back to origins, we didn't fall because we were sick. We fell because of a, um, an abuse of a free will God gave us. We disobeyed. So the terms of answering that initially, from our beginnings, theologically at least, were we disobeyed, we used our wills in a wrong way, and we've overstepped it. If you look at what the sciences are doing, they're doing everything they can to deny those origins. God doesn't belong in this. Justice doesn't belong in this. Punishments don't belong in this. Mercy doesn't belong in this. As a matter of fact, remember that line of his in Lewis's, to me it was extraordinary when he says, I, I, I try to highlight in our thing where he said, we've reached a point um, where, God bless, sorry, we know that, oh, we know that one school of psychology already regards religion as a neurosis. There are lots of progressive modern scientific who believe utopian, this is Auden's Eden utopian, who believe that religion's outdated and anybody who anybody holds to those beliefs is disordered. If one of those people came into, you know, under the under the context of treating it in a courtroom, most of those people would look at that person as having a disorder. That's why Lewis says at the end, this is not act. We know that one school of psychology already regards religion as a neurosis. When this particular neurosis becomes inconvenient to government, what's to hinder government from proceeding to cure it? Such cure will, of course, be compulsory, but under the humanitarian theory, it will not be called by the shocking name of persecution. Nobody will blame us for being Christian. Nobody will hate us. Nobody will revile us. The new Nero will approach us with the silky manners of a doctor. And though all will be, in fact, compulsory as the tunica molesta, it goes on, all will go on within the unemotional therapeutic sphere, all these doctors with their impersonal practices, where words like right and wrong or freedom and slavery are never heard. 
And thus when command is given, every prominent Christian in in the land may vanish overnight into institutions for the treatment of ideologically unsound. One of the things that's going on, if you look politically at the debates, is that there are lots of people who take the position that anybody holding to Christian dogmas are bigoted, intolerant, prejudiced. You need to get rid of them because they're in the way of a new utopian world that's going to do away with dogmas. It's one, it's one of the fundamental issues that's going on in the political debates today. So um, there are two basic basically different ways of looking at the human being. Um, the human will, free will, if there, whether there's something transcendent to the human soul, and what will be the effect of looking at the human being as if, so he, he's not responsible, he's sick. He's got something he had nothing to do with and he's gotta be treated. What, what's the effect, long range effect of looking at human beings in that way? Those are my two base Fred, sorry, you had you had something well, to say. I think you may have touched on it in this last sequence, but to me, I mean Alcoholic Anonymous Anonymous says that they are effective in thirty three percent of the cases. And the cases where they are effective is when the individual ultimately recognizes they have a problem right. and are ready to fix it. Right. And it, it goes back you know, to some of the things that we've discussed, for example, in, in, until we have faces and uh, the brothers, in that there is ultimately a self-evaluation uh, that you ultimately decide you want to change, that, there, that you have actually done something that needs to be fixed, if you will. And this cure process can go on forever and never really accomplish anything unless the individual takes responsibility for what they are doing and recognizes that they need to do something about it. And to me, that's what I think Lewis is bringing out in the essay, and I think he also brings out in The Abolition of Man, that this whole concept of, of a cure is supposed to be more merciful but in the end, it probably is less merciful yeah. than the justice system itself, because the justice system ultimately at least helps you focus on the fact that there is something that you have done that is that is wrong or inappropriate, and you need to do something about it. You need to take responsibility for it. Um, whereas if you take this approach, well, you're just, you have a disease, it's not your fault, um, you know, but we're going to fix you, you know, right. I think ultimately nobody can fix you, but yourself. And if you're not willing to, to, to make that effort to do that self analysis and figure out, okay, you know, it's really me, it's not somebody else and do something about it. You're going to, you're going to have that problem forever. Right. Don, if you can hold off one second, I just want to, I want to, um, take a second and respond to Fred. Um, if all of you remember the opening of the Divine Comedy, it's sort of building on what you're saying, Fred, but it, it's just going back to our literature for two reasons. You remember when the Divine Comedy began, Dante wanted to go up the mountain. What he showed is that there's this, lo this longing in the human soul for something divine. 
No medical science is going to get to that. It can't because you're dealing with the human will and something basically mysterious. Scientists can't deal with that. Dante's showing us that the that the there's the, that all people have this transcendent longing, the the deer panting for water. It's he wants to go up, so he's taking responsibility for himself. And he so this this is like an opening on on two um, A. Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, AA. It's like an opening on that. He wants to go up. There's something wrong with him. He knows it. Remember, he's just come out of a dark forest, and he's going to get beaten back. He's just come out of a dark world. I'm, I'm assuming that no, no AA person begins without reaching some point where he realizes he's in a hole he can't get out of. He wants out. He can't, he can't do it by himself. Dante goes up. He tries to do it by himself, and you know that he's beaten back by those three beasts. And he's got to learn to deal with those three beasts, those beasts, but we learn he can't deal with them without help. And we learn shortly after that, Virgil comes to get him, but Virgil only comes because Mary had got Lucia, Lucia had got Beatrice, and Beatrice had got Virgil. So that there's a whole community of help, both human and divine, at work to help Dante recover himself. But he cannot do it alone. It's not up to him. I mean, it, it is. It's going to involve him. But there's no way he can do it without help from other people. Learning things he, he would never have gotten to on his own. So in some sense, it's almost like a literary diagram of, you know, the AA program. Or in, I think any healthy um, rehabilitation program. Anyway, Don, go ahead. Okay. Let's see. Um... I think we're talking here about two fundamentally different worldviews. There's a book I read uh, about, that uh, came out in 2011, uh, War of the Worldviews, uh, written by Deepak Chopra and Leonard Mladenov. It's basically a, a book where the two people debate issues. Uh, Deepak is on the side of spirituality and... Uh, the other guy is a scientist at Caltech. He's on the world of science, and they they have completely different views on any basic topic you know that they discuss in the uh, in the book. And I think it all stems from the fact that uh, if you're on the spiritual plane, you have a completely different worldview than the people that are on the science plane. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I think that the Western civilization for uh, a long time was a Christian religious uh, world and with the scientific revolution we've gone the pendulum has swung that side and uh, you know when you start with those different worldviews you're going to come up with completely right. different outlooks on right. law justice mercy right uh, what the human being is yeah you know if you have God in the picture versus not God in the picture yeah if I can just and add to that, Don, too, um, I'm so glad you s said that because it's true. This is in support of our own faith right now, and it, and it goes to something I think you and I have touched on, Don, and you've, you've repeated forever since you know we've known each other, that with the Catholic Church and Christ as our center, we've got a God who affirmed the human body who made a place for science insofar as science has dealt with physical things. So if our faith, I mean, according to our faith, 
our faith, and this is what, you know, Fide Orazio with John Paul, our faith should be doing everything it can to reconcile science with religion. I, 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 I get a little bit nervous about spirituality because I feel like you, I'm not sure that you feel this way, but when I see people put dichotomies like that, spirituality, materialism, I think, you know, don't forget that there's a reconciliation with Christ and faith and reason where you can bring reason and faith, things of rationality and science and religion together. Spirituality makes me nervous because sometimes I think of people who talk about that as if they're sort of lifted above the human body and its constraints and, you know. But I, Don said this a number of times, I was only repeating what he said. I, I just think one of the great challenges facing us in the middle age, or I mean in our age, is bringing science and religion together. And I don't think they can do that well. No. They have the help to do that well if they focused on Christ because he brings a whole order of metaphysical, eschatological realities down into this world. But you've got these people who want to make one or the other and divide it. You know, um, widen the divisions instead of closing them. Our, Our faith, this is my claim, I mean, some of you may disagree, our faith should be doing everything it can to bring those two orders closer together. And, I, and, and the reason we don't do it, I think, is because it's just that hard. You know, everything in the culture is against it today. I, you know, I just rare, I can't, I can't think of good books in which scientists can use a human language to speak to ordinary people. And I can't think of ordinary people who can use um, um, difficult concepts um, to relate to people on a different plane. That's that's why I've said to both Don and Fred a number of times, probably more than I should, I wish the two of them would write more than I can tell because both of them have those kinds of minds. Here, I've got one last question before we leave because we're getting close. We, we've talked about the, you know, Lewis's argument and what happens to people when they replace justice and mercy with a notion of cure. I think Suzanne said it really well. If we ever lose, Western civilization was founded on our awareness in the Iliad, pre-Socratic, all the way through a tradition, that the human being is made in God's image and he's responsible for himself. Going back to Bob's point, the origins of our fall, we carry our fall with us, the origins were in um, the breaking of a law and a a punishment. Punishments involve pain. That's why the woman has a sword, the image of justice. Because nobody, the the humanitarians who want to escape pain and say you're being barbaric are being stupid. Every every time somebody's punished, it could be a child for doing a silly thing, you know, being asked to sit down and time out. Laws, laws by nature crush our wills. When we're called to account for something we've done, it, it upsets us, it, it crushes our wills. We have to say no, and we have to receive a punishment. So um, the basis of our civilization has been this, this belief in human responsibility and some accord between the human soul and God's way, this nature. It's gonna be very much the issue in, in uh, in C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, because he's going to keep talking about the way, the Tao, the way. It's one of the reasons I think it's such a good book. So our civilization rests on that, and it's important to, 
to remember that. And so many modern theories do away with that. And it's interesting that one of the effects of what they do that is to do away with the notion of God, the human soul, individual responsibility. And my question, and partly it's answered, I, I mean, one of the arguments that I would make, or one, at least one of the questions that I would ask is whether the preponderance of addictions in our age don't reflect that worldview going back a century when people were encouraged to see themselves as victims, as sick. That view is absolutely Calvinistic. You're sick. Something wrong with you. Here's the second question that I'd like to ask in the little time that we have remaining because we didn't touch on it. Even if you disagree, let me for the moment just take a stand. I believe justice is absolutely crucial. For When we lose a sense of law, we're inviting chaos. Without law behind us, we're lost. Thomas More's statement was to Roper in, you know, Man for All Seasons. Roper, because who was a, one of the Reformed Protestants, he was so influenced by what the do away with law, grace was everything. He said, when you do away with the law, then where do you hide from the devil? When you start taking away boundaries, then how do you account, what do you do with crimes when they start multiplying? Take away boundaries, and you're encouraging people to have their wills, to do whatever they want, Laws in, or lawlessness increases. So I'm going to take that stand, let, if you can just allow me. But my question is, and it goes back to Bob's story, because I think all of us know it. Um, what happens when people abuse laws? When the people who inflict or impose them do it badly? What is mercy, and how important is mercy to our understanding of this relationship between justice and mercy? What is mercy? We've only got 10 minutes, but, and Lewis doesn't go into it. What he, what he does say is that if you take away justice, um, you undermine mercy. Doc, can you go back to what you were saying about justice and mercy at the dinner table? What, what is mercy? What, how does it relate to law? What, why, why take it away and what, or why is it important? Is that too far? I can't remember exactly what you're, I mean, I don't know what you're referring to. Yeah. You can't have, you can't have mercy if you don't have justice, because mercy implies that somebody acknowledges their guilt. Oh, yeah. Um, if you don't have that, then there's no way of, of offering, of offering mercy. I mean, we didn't say it at the dinner table, but I thought of that parable of the, unjust steward, um, his board gives him undeserving, like it's always undeserving, um, undeserving mercy. And um, what did he do? He turned around and committed a sin. I mean, he refused to give the mercy to the next person down the line. Um, that's what happens when you try and give mercy without somebody recognizing their sin. Yeah. If I, if I can go back to the, I mean, take Doc, Doc's example, but you know that very, I mean, we've heard this case that there are lots of men who go to jail. Let's say they committed, let's say they, they hurt somebody, fraud, I, whatever it is. Let, let's say they killed somebody. Somebody goes to jail and his response is, I don't care, I'm going to go back and do it again. Why does it matter that somebody acknowledge their guilt as a condition for mercy? 
If you continue to, uh, let's say you, you, somebody commits a murder and, you, and your act of mercy is put it back out on the street again. So it's going to this idea of punishment, that punishment is an essential element in, in the way we deal with each other. If you take it, how can you give mercy to somebody who refuses it, who denies it? St. Thomas's response to the unforgivable sin, his unforgivable sin is when a person um, refuses to receive mercy from Christ. When we read Dante, you remember that everybody in hell was there because they refused mercy. All they wanted was law. Going on to purgatory meant you acknowledged your faults and you wanted to amend them. So the whole activity of purgatory was taking responsibility for your faults, all of us, being glad to pick them up, <laughs> not burning switches, you know, being glad and um, doing what we can to become better. So why is mercy important? I, I think all of us know the danger of, ju of justice by itself is that people can become very self-righteous in the way they apply justice. And what they end up giving is not justice, it's worse, it's vengeance or something else. Justice is supposed to be objective, impersonal. It's for the, it's for the good of another person. It should not carry over something of ourselves, something wrong in ourselves. If you can allow for that definition that just, you know, she, the figure of justice, she's blind. She doesn't let, she does not let her emotions dictate what she's going to do. She distributes a justice objectively. She doesn't let. So this whole thing about very often people abuse justice, that very often the way we impose it can make things worse. We all know that. We all know that. My question here is, what is mercy? And what have we learned about mercy in its relation to justice since Christ came? Fred, go ahead. You. Well, I, I just don't think you can have justice without mercy or mercy without justice. You can have law without mercy. And that's as bad as having mercy without justice. Because justice without law without mercy can be revenge easily. Mercy without justice can spin off into chaos because there's it's all relative at that point. And it just depends on who happens to be in control of whatever that particular instance is. And there's there's never any way to create an an anchor that 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 allows you to apply it consistently. To me, justice and, and mercy are inseparable. In order, in order to have one, you can't have the other. Because have to have the what other. What Lewis is saying is that if you have mercy with no justice, that's not really mercy at all. Right. Why? Explain that. Can you just result in the individual to whom it's being applied to? as experiencing merciless. So to me, the, the, the key is, and what I think Christ was telling us is that you can't really have justice without mercy and you can't really have mercy without justice. There has to be uh, a connection between the two to ultimately acquire either one. 
or to achieve the good, if, if the end of justice, if the end of justice is the good, so we put up laws to restrain us from doing bad. So the ultimate end of a law is to help us become good by putting away those things in us that keep us from being good. So the end of just the end of the law should help us to be good. Do all people in um, um, what what's the word? Do all people impose? Is not the word. Do all people um, impose the law with a sense of the good of another people of another person? I don't think so. Very often they do it and let their emotions. So the end of the justice or the law is the good of another person. I think for me the question is when when Christ comes in, he fulfills the law. He does not uh, undermine it. He doesn't abrogate it. He, do, he says, I came to fulfill it. If I can shorten this, it seems to me what Christ does in offering himself is to show that the good we're after through the law is much greater than we knew that he invites us to share in a divine goodness so the goodness goodness before he came was that was always the end or should have been I mean, you impose a law because you you hope it will help somebody become better christ fulfilled the law and and offered his life as a mercy that is something we didn't deserve that took us beyond the good that the law could help us to. He offered us something transcendent so that we could share in his divine nature. And I think he's asking us to bring that to all that we do with each other. So there's a human goodness at the human order, at the human level. There's also a greater divine goodness that's beyond the human that he offered us. And I, I couldn't agree more with you, Fred. The danger is when we separate them, if we don't uphold the law, we become enablers and we make people worse. Um, if, if we don't bring both of them together, we're just some way undercutting our own nature and everything. Everything that was given to us before Christ came, everything that was given to us when he came. Kathy, go ahead. Sorry. Um. You kept saying, are you referred to, um, are you were talking about mercy, and you said that's wanting the good of uh, the other for the sake of the other. And uh, Bishop Barron defines love as willing the good of the other right. for the sake of the other. Right. So I'm wondering if when we put Christ in the picture, you know, um, we're, and Christ was the fulfillment of the law, if I remember correctly. And if that isn't divine love and the divine mercy you're talking about. Yeah. I'm going to go out. I mean, this is really good. I'm so glad for these discussions because they, they always help me, honestly. I mean, just to, just to push this another step, if, if, a, if we apply the law because we want the good of another person, if we offer mercy, here, I'm going, to, I'm going to really go out on a limb here in a step, but I think, it, I think I'm on sound ground here. When we offer mercy to another person, I mean, take Bob's example, if we can go back to his dad, because I, I mean, I, there are times when I look back at, you know, some of the moments when I was dealing with some of the things our kids did, and I look back and it just upsets me to see my response. But 
if we look at mercy in the way that we just talked about it, that Christ is offering a divine love, the cost of that was a cross. So if, if love means loving the other for the sake of that other's goodness, and so when we apply the law, that, there's the word I've been, apply the law for the good of the other, I'm talking about Greek, Roman, Jew. The way of David, the way of Athens, the way of Rome. Long before Christ's gift. The notion of justice we got from Athens, Rome, and Jerusalem is that woman. The law is impersonal. It's for the good of another. God, Yahweh said, love me, you know, do not do these things, do not do this. He was saying, don't do these things if you want to be good. So we had the law. So the end of the law was a good. It was to say, stop doing these things in order for you to be good. If you look at Christ did with his mercy, it seems to me what he's doing is offering a divine love, but I'm going to go, I, now I believe it. I mean, I don't think I realize it fully until this moment. He's saying, no, not any of us can fulfill the law and bring the mercy that we're talking about without a cross. So if my son bothers me and what, what he's doing and I want to string my son up, wring him by the neck, <laughs> I've got to go to a cross for a moment to do something so that I make sure I'm being just with my son, but also putting myself away, entering a cross, so that I fulfill that justice, whatever it is I'm asking of him, in a way that will be forgiving him, even while I'm applying a justice, bringing to him a spirit that comes from my renouncing myself. Love. A cross, sorry? Love. Well, it's, it's, I'm saying it's going, well, it's love, but it's, I'm saying it's a divine, it's Christ. What I'm saying is, you can disagree, but I'm throwing this out because it just hit me that to, to bring mercy to somebody to fulfill the law, because I believe what Fred was saying a while ago, it, it means applying the law truthfully. You don't let your kids off. Your husbands and your wife, your community, we, we've got to uphold justice to say, no, you can't do that. But if we're living Christ, we uphold that law, but we don't let it, we don't let it turn into vengeance vengeance is wrong always always vengeance is going beyond but to bring mercy as christ it means in that moment when we're applying the law we have to go to a cross put ourselves away to bring a divine mercy to that act not do away with it not do away not undermine it love now how easy <laughs> how easy is that in the concrete Situation, And I'm going to go along with Lewis here because our tendency in the modern world is to treat mercy as if it's being nice. So what everybody does today, instead of dealing with justice, they're nice. They walk around problems. They, they intellectualize them. They intellectualize everything. Everything's in their head. They don't deal with justice. They don't deal with heart. I mean, tough love. They don't deal with problems. They walk around them. They excuse them. They look at them and think of themselves as being compassionate, merciful, and nice, and then problems get worse. If we're doing what Christ said, I'm going to say to Don, addictions cut down, problems cut down. We help our kid, we help our kids to grow up. We help our kids to grow up better. Here, the last words of Ch Ch um, Lewis's first. And all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation. This is our age. We clamor. 
we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive, dynamism, self-sacrifice, creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. How do we help our kids grow up? How do we answer our problems today? My question is, aren't, proposition, aren't our addictions are given to being sick, addicted, partly the result of a way of looking at ourselves that keeps us from being fully human, fully responsible, just, merciful. Let me leave it there. Our time's up. <laughs> Unless anybody's got any, any, if you guys are okay, I'd like to leave it. We will start Abolition of Man. How's that for a cheery title? <laughs> um, let's unless there are any pressing comments let's stop we are in a crisis I believe in our culture in our families, in our marriages, in our culture we are in trouble and if we don't get straight on who we are this is Boethius Fred this because I you remember, Boethius began, the trouble with you is you've got amnesia. You've forgotten what your beginnings are. You've forgotten what your ends are. You've forgotten who you are. What does it mean to be a human being today? That's the, I think it's at the root of the crisis we're in today. Who are we? Who are we? Let me leave it there because I'm wound up. <laughs> the, other, the other Bob is who is... How do you mandate mercy? <clears throat> well, you don't mandate. You either give it freely or you don't. I mean, Christ has us to give it. With that, that. But, but that's the problem. That's the problem we have. One of the problems we have in this world with regard to the application of justice and the relationship to mercy. See, here, let me answer that. Now I'm going to say, because I don't want to get into this right now. I don't think you can mandate mercy. Christ said you give this freely. I, this is what I, so you either do it with him or not. Well, the problem is the courts, the civil courts, this is St. Thomas, this is our church. The responsibility of our court system in the state is to bring justice, not, not mercy. Justice. Well, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. If any judge in, our, in a Christian world were to be a judge, there's no way he could be a judge and not bring mercy. We're in a post-Christian world right now. You can't expect of judges an obedience to God. They're trying to apply the law. What's prob what, what Lewis is saying that I think we have to take seriously is that so often today, people have grown up associating being nice with being merciful, and justice is overlooked. The, um, the court system has, as it's, this is Amy Barrett. If you, if you listen to the hearings, you, I mean, what an amazing woman. She's got to apply the law. Whatever personal feeling, she knows that when she applies the law, I mean, if you listen to the Democrats, they were all giving her cases of what she should feel sorry for. Every one of her answers was, I've got to apply the law, no matter what. I don't think that's a sign that she's heartless or ruthless or, 
The state has as its requirement justice. Where the laws need reform, the laws need to be reformed. Mercy is something all of us who believe in Christ are asked to bring to what we do freely. I just made a case for the struggle that I, because I think it's really hard. We have to bring justice. We can't let our personal feelings get in the way, but we have to bring the love of Christ. I, my contention right now is that I don't think any of us can do that well. It goes to Fred's question. Why don't we do this well? I think because it's not easy to go on a cross to put ourselves away. Right. Let me stop if I can. Um, okay. Next week, we start abolition of man. And we can, I'll, 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 what I'll do is I'll let the, I'll take the first 15 minutes to take up any questions any of you may have on justice and mercy. So we can pick up right here where we are. Um, any questions or, you know, worries or concerns, uh, we'll give the first, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes to this whole thing about um, justice and mercy. And we start abolition of man. Okay. Good deal. Thank Sounds you for good. all your comments. Thanks. Don, yeah. thank you for all your, you know, all the, I don't know if you got all, but Don, if check in on the, on the blog, you guys, because Don sent some, he, he sent a really, uh, by the way, I'm putting, I'm going to put the Merton essay online, Don, so people can look at it, so, anyway, you guys have a good week, stay safe, and do everything you can this week to be just and merciful, what else, what else to say, okay? Not all. Good night. Uh, bye, you guys, you. bye. 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 Uh, oh. Uh. Oh, sorry. Could you get them right away? God, sorry. I have a key. God, can you do it quickly?